0: welcome to another episode of the carolyn glick middle east news hour and you're not going to believe it but this week special guest our co-host gadi <laughs> tab hey gadi how are you doing
1: hey carolyn how is it without me
0: oh it's very lonely and cold but you know yeah, I matter, but it's it's great to have you back in from the cold and uh, i
1: heard your podcast turned completely pessimistic ever since i'm gone
0: Oh, well, you know, I mean, you're just so warm and fuzzy and optimistic. You're just the Pollyanna of Israeli you. letters, I'll, right?
1: I'll help you as best I can.
0: All right. Well, great. Okay. So we're going to talk this week about um, everything that's happened in the past week. And there are about uh, two main things that have happened that we're going to have to really discuss, today, which are that uh, we've had two uh, major terrorist attacks, one in Beersheba and the other in Khadera. Um, that were carried out by Israeli Arab citizens and what the implications of that are uh, for Israeli society and for the whole concept of a uh, two-state solution. Um, And then we're also going to uh, talk about the third major event which was the Negev summit which brought four Arab um, foreign ministers uh, to Israel along with the U.S. Secretary of State uh, and they uh, met with uh, the foreign minister, Yair Lapid, and uh, discussed various things. So we're going to talk about uh, those events. But I think uh, the first one that we have to talk about is the one at home, which are the homegrown terrorist attacks with the Bedouin and with the Israeli Arabs in uh, Um al-Fakhim in the Galilee. Um, and so just briefly, I guess I should uh, mention for anybody who hasn't been paying attention, so last week, uh, A Bedouin Israeli uh, from the Negev, from a town called Khura, uh, carried out a very professional uh, terrorist attack uh, for over, I think, 10 minutes before uh, he was killed by uh, -by. passersby. He killed four people in uh, three different events. One, he uh, ran over, one he shot, and then he got back into his car and he continued driving and he shot a couple more people, or I think he wounded four and killed two Uh, in a clothes store before he came out again to continue on and a bus driver and another passerby shot him uh, and killed him and ended the attack and and all that the police hadn't managed to arrive. That was the first attack. And then this week, um, you had two um, Israeli Arabs from uh, the Israeli Arab town uh, Um uh, uh, in the Lower Galilee drove in a very nice car, by the way, uh, to Khadera, which is an Israeli city and not far from there. And um, they had enough ammunition on them to kill about a thousand people. Uh, they opened fire on two border guards, border policemen, soldiers who were waiting at a bus stop. They stole the gun, the, uh, the M16 of uh, one of the uh, border guards that they killed. And uh, they intended to continue on with an act of mass murder, but sort of amazingly, um, at a nearby restaurant, there was a commando unit uh, that was happening to be having dinner together and uh, they came out and they shot them both and killed them and were able to stop a bloodbath. Uh, But they actually were fully armed. Uh, They had clearly Uh, had had undergone some form of military training because they knew how to handle the firearms. They were wearing this weird uniform that they had put together um, and uh, body armor, and uh, they were intent to carry out uh, mass murder. All three of these people uh, were affiliated in one way or another with uh, the Islamic State. Um, And so those are the those are the uh, uh, facts as we know them, or the main ones. And uh, why don't I hand it over to you for a while, Gadi, and you tell me, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on what just happened and, and how we're supposed to look at it?
1: Yeah, the first thing to notice is that, that these are uh, Israeli uh, citizens. So that <laughs> unlike uh, Hamas uh, terror from Gaza or, um, or, or terror entering from Judea and Samaria, uh, this is these are Israeli citizens which are which live under much uh, better conditions than, um, than than Gazan Arabs um, of course our progressive elites immediately said that the problem is that they are discriminated against but uh, facts show differently the Arab population of Israel is constantly improving its status also vis-a-vis the Jewish population certainly uh, as compared to Arab uh, countries and even to Arab diasporas, certainly um, uh, European Arab diaspora. Uh, w- what we are seeing is the, the radicalization and Islamization and Palestinization of Israeli Arabs. And uh, the, specifically, we should notice the Bedouins, which are not originally in any form uh, part of the, uh, um, a, a Palestinian national uh, movement. And what we haven't been noticing is that these people are increasingly armed. I'll say, as we continue, Carolyn, I'll say a little more about uh, Bedouistan, as a recent book put it, a, 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 a state within a state that the Bedouins have been, have been building uh, inside Israel. Um, but but the, uh, uh, the first thing I think we should talk about is that now, the representatives of the Bedouin uh, 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 population, and in general, the Muslim Brotherhood is in the government. The Muslim Brotherhood is banned in Egypt, but here it is not just in the government. It actually holds the balance of the government and is, is has become the arbiter of who in Israel will hold power.
0: You know, it's... Um... It's interesting, I have my book behind me, The Israeli Solution, and I wrote it uh, nine years ago. And uh, don't worry, I'm working on a new book. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the premise there was based on something that had happened right in the midst of the Arab Spring, which is that the Israeli Arab community saw the breakdown of all of these neighboring Arab states and Arab uh, populations and, uh, and societies. And uh, and they and they uh, freaked out and they realized, wait a second, you know, our greatest asset here is our Israeli citizenship. And this was the first time that you saw a real revisitation of the of among Israeli Arabs of their relationship with Israel. They had gone on. They had undergone in a, a sort of, as you were saying, a Palestinianization process when the PLO came in here in the 1990s. We saw mass rioting by Israeli Arabs in 2000 at the beginning of the Palestinian Terror War. Um, and uh, it was abruptly uh, put down by the Israeli police in October of 2000. And then we only had sporadic involvement by Israeli Arabs inside of terrorist, uh, uh, in, in, in carrying out terrorist attacks uh, uh, during the Palestinian Terror War. Um, and then things began to change. Uh, around 2010, 2011, 2012, around the time that I was writing my book, where you saw Israeli Arabs who were saying, wait a minute, our Israeli citizenship actually may be the most precious thing that we have, that it's, we are uh, lucky to be Israelis. And you had um, very uh, precipitous rise in the percentage of Israeli Arabs who identified as Israelis, who were sending their, uh, um, particularly among Christian Israeli Arabs, who didn't want to be referred to as, as Arabs at all. They started saying they wanted to be referred to as Assyrians, I think, um, and all of these other identities that they were embracing rather than being Arabs. Um, and uh, even among the Israeli Muslim uh, Arab population, you had higher rates of, of volunteer service in the IDF, in national service, you had Israeli Arab parents who for the first time were sending their children to Hebrew language schools rather than Arabic language schools. Um, and uh, and this entire process, it seems that over the past several years, I don't know how many, um, has just been completely reversed. And now not only in part of it is the rise of Daesh, uh, Isis, uh, that clearly had an impact not only on the Arab uh, Muslim minorities in, in the Benelous in in Paris uh, and in Belgium, but also uh, here, uh, that it inspired them. Um, but uh, you see the rise of radical Palestinianism, Islamism uh, among Israeli Arabs in a way that we really haven't seen. In the past, may also have to do with the radicalization of the international left and their embrace of anti Semitism. Um, it's got to do with a lot of factors. And maybe it also has to do with the fact that the process of, of integration of Israeli Arabs, maybe it was unreal. Maybe people like myself were overly optimistic about the implications of the trend in terms of their identification as Israelis. But what we're seeing increasingly uh, in a very prominent way. Um, over the past many, you know, several years, five years, if you want to put it at a, a date on it, is, um, uh, is, is um, uh, increased identification among Israeli Arabs with Israel's enemies, uh, publicly, public displays of hostility towards Jews. Um, obviously, it came, uh, it, it, it was demonstrated most profoundly last May, with the pogroms that were undertaken by Israeli Arab citizens against their Jewish neighbors in mixed Israeli Arab and Jewish cities like Lod, Jerusalem, Akko, um, and and others throughout the country. So um, we, we saw that there is an increased readiness, something that we haven't seen ever, unprecedented readiness of Israeli Arabs who live in mixed Arab, Israeli Arab Jewish cities inside of Israel to attack their Jewish neighbors. And it really is now a strategic threat. More and more people are talking about it openly, that in the next military exchange that Israel has with the Palestinians, or really as any Arab enemy, uh, we can expect an active fifth column of Israeli Arabs uh, uh blocking major traffic arteries preventing mobilization and transit of forces to the front and uh and, and we've act- already
1: had that through in the, in the operation guardian of the walls when th- there is a very large um, arab percentage among israeli uh, truck drivers and uh, astonishingly the idf relies on civil Trucking to uh, to move its forces and its heavy equipment, mm-hmm. and half of those drivers just didn't come to work uh, during that during that conflict. Now, as you know, there are two schools here. The and 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 it's doubtful whether one of them can ever convince the other. Maybe until it's too late, because on the left, what they say is that this is a reaction to long time discrimination and the feeling of marginalization among uh, Arab Israelis. And therefore what we should do is is be more receptive and more understanding towards even radicalism in the Arab population. The other school says Israel does what no other country does, it allows active Arab parties calling for the destruction of Israel in our parliament. It allows the state-sponsored Arab-speaking school system to 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 um, preach the destruction of Zionism and explain Zionism as a a uh, an immoral colonial movement uh, designed to displace indigenous people. So so the question is: Should be should we be more? understanding and tolerant, or should we be more strict about that? And it's, and it's been my opinion for a while, even before I, I, I left the left, that so long as we allow uh, people to run for our parliament on a platform calling for the destruction of Zionism, we are encouraging the wildest elements within this population to see that there is no no authority, no sovereignty, no um, uh, law to stop them from uh, doing whatever they wish. And this is what we see now in in Bedouistan where where you know the, the whole Negev is controlled by Bedouins and Bedouin crime organization and I, and, and I just read in this recent book it looks... Uh, it, 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 you can even understand what it is if you don't understand Hebrew, because the Hebrew letters look like Arabic, and it's called Bedouistan. And and what what it exposes is that even even um, state authorities and municipalities pay protection to Bedouin crime organizations, it, and it, and you can find them in municipal budgets. If you look at a, a, a at, at a clause, do you say Saif, Karlin Echomrim. You're on mute. Uh,
0: I said, yes, it's clause, yes.
1: It's a, in, in a clause in the budget where it says night security. Night security means that they'll burn your school if you don't pay them. And so, you know, a little school somewhere pays half a million shekel for night security. In its budget. So this is this is a lawless lend. It's not politically correct and therefore forbidden to say it in, in the Israeli media. But Bedouins are about 10% of the drivers in the south of Israelis, and they're involved in 61% of the of of, of the of car accidents. I think and, that and any Israeli
0: is, who drives down south to go on vacation oh, in in a lot knows it because they, you know, it's terrifying to drive down there. Um, but you know, I I think that the the other thing that we're discovering, and I think that the 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 terror attacks uh, over the past week uh, just have reinforced it, is that every conversation that you have um, in the media about about Arab Israeli uh, irredentism, uh, um, fifth columnism, or whatever you want to call it, uh, rejection of Israel's right to exist, and siding actively with people who are our enemies uh, to to annihilate this country, um, who are uh, whatever is that you have always begin the conversation by saying, a large the large majority, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of Israeli Arabs are law abiding. um, And, you know, they would never do any of this. We're talking about a very small minority. And, you know, I think that Unfortunately, we're gonna if we want to try to have a policy debate that's gonna get us anywhere, um, we're gonna have to reexamine that basic assumption, because and I wrote about this on Twitter this morning, and and it's something that, you know, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to publish or not, just because I don't know where it leads us, and that's the problem, is that, I I mean when you look at the fact that there is not one member of Knesset from an Arab party who accepts Israel's right to exist, not one. Not one that won't uh, stand in solidarity with Palestinian terrorists, not one. Um, You have parties in the Knesset whose members have engaged in acts of war against Israel. And I'm talking specifically about Balad, but it's not only that one. You have, you know, in Ram, you have a, a, a condominium of interest with Hamas. You have active support from NGOs uh, that are that are part of the Islamic movement, of which uh, the the Islamic Brotherhood Party in the coalition is is a full member who support Hamas, who pay for Hamas, who who fund Hamas operations in Gaza. And so you, you look at that and you say, well, why is that, you know, in in the in 2013, when I wrote my book, there were. Uh, two Arab Israelis that I that I wrote about that were, are Zionist, uh, Karinawi. Uh, one one of them is named Karinawi, and he's in the Negev. And I can't remember the name of the of the Muslim Israeli woman whose son served in the Golani Infantry Brigade. And both of them wanted to run for Knesset. Uh, and uh, and <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Karinawi. Sorry, I'm still nursing a bad cold. Karinawi wanted to uh, form a new zionist arab party <coughs> excuse me but obviously neither of them actually got into the knesset and uh, all of the members of the knesset that represent arab israelis and not all arab israelis vote for these parties but the vast majority of them do uh do not support the the, the existence of israel so how can you look at that and say that the large majority of is, of israeli arabs accept israel
1: I think in, in the case of the Bedouins, we have to understand a structural a problem that's that's brewing. And when I say Palestinization of the of the Bedouins, this is not just an ideological phenomenon. What is happening with the I'm, I'm trying to second your coughs, although mine are less impressive. What is happening with it with the Bedouin population is that Israel allows polygamy. And and this is not only horrendous to the women, which also goes to show how sincere Israeli feminists on the left are because they refuse to talk about these questions. But uh, apparently Bedouin women have become too independent for Bedouin men. And so now they import, and also they don't have enough women, of course, because population is about half and half. So they import women from Judea and Samaria, and specifically from South Hebron Mount, um, where they pay a reduced dowry for the women. So they actually, this is actually trafficking in women, what they do. So they buy brides and they, and they bring them to, to Israel. And, and these women, these Palestinian women caught in polygamy, are also uh, almost slaves in their status. They, are, they have no Israeli IDs when they go to give birth, they borrow an ID from from a a Bedouin woman who is a citizen of Israel. This is why some statistics show that some Bedouin women have a child every three months. It's because for one woman who has an Israeli ID, there are also two illegal um, Palestinian women. And these women are also exposed to any whim of their husbands, because if you marry a Bedouin woman, then she has a family and she has a tribe she belongs to. And if you abuse her to an extent, which according to Bedouin standards is too much, then, then th- she has a father who, who would stand up for her rights. But if you bring a Palestinian woman uh, who has no rights, her father is outside um, the, the reach of, of, of her society. So she's completely, at the mercy of her husband. Now these women have have many children and these children are become Israeli citizens but they are they belong to an oppressed minority within Bedouin society. So it is not surprising that many of these children grow up to be outlaws. And if you look at TikTok where there are endless endless videos in which they they show off their wild driving children under 10 driving cars um, and touting, tooting, touting guns, um, and, and automatic weapons, and and showing off their their burning cars and and and, uh, and destroying property, and 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 it's no go zone for the police. So Israel has lost sovereignty over the Negev, and I didn't say anything about the fact that they are illegally uh, settling the, the uh, every nook and cranny in the desert and then our progressive Supreme Court. What does it do? It, it has declared the right to uh, to flowing water. Yeah. Me? Yeah, flowing water. It, that's a constitutional right. And according to their interpretation, it means that wherever you put a tent, unless you're Jewish, then the state is obliged to bring you water and facilities. Um, and and then and then build schools and medical um, facilities and 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 much else. So the state, the, the, or or rather the progressive arm of the 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 which is the Uber government of Israel, which overrides government's decision, the Supreme Court is actually encouraging lawlessness. And if you uh, know the map of Israel and look at the illustration on this. Uh, on the cover of the book, which I'm, I'm not selling it because the, your, your listeners are not Hebrew speakers. So this is motivated only by pedagogical interest. And you see the Negev is just gone. It's Israel without the Negev. The Negev is all green uh, with the letters of Hamas.
0: With a little blue dot at the bottom for Eilat, which is how we all know about the existence of Bedouistan, right? Because we all go to Eilat for, for vacation. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think that um, you know, going back to, the attacks, I think what we see here as, as is not surprising um, is the tip of the iceberg, right? That, that, that the terrorism is the end product of a society and a um, pathology of, of Israeli non-governance that is enabling this the evolution of an alien political and social entity inside of Israel that doesn't accept, that doesn't recognize the existence of the state um, and that it is by its very nature um, criminal and irredentist um, because it doesn't accept the authority of Israel. So why would it uh, respect any of the laws? And obviously the only way that a democracy can deal with this is through very harsh, unapologetic Consistent law enforcement, right? I mean, the only way that this can be even, you can even begin to remedy this, is by harsh enforcement of the laws. Is by having a court system and uh, and a state prosecution that is willing to go to the bat and uh, and and make sure that the protection rackets are all wrapped up and thrown into prison and that all of their and also the polygamy, is, poly- polygamy and, and obviously, is you know but, I'll tell you about the polygamy thing for a second I mean I had that one a very uh, notable conversation uh, I, I ate dinner uh, in 2007 with uh, with our own Barak and, um, and I raised the issue of polygamy and how is it possible that we don't enforce the laws of polygamy towards the Bedouin and he said well they have their Customs. Now, this is a man who you know is willing to trounce religious traditional Zionism at every turn because you have to be pluralistic, but he's willing to accept the enslavement of women, the trafficking of women, as you were mentioning, uh, in, in, in the face of uh, the dangers that opposes to the existence of the Jewish state. Uh, out of progressive ideals and 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 post-nationalism. And what you always find with these post-nationalists, with these post-Zionists, with these post-Americans, whatever they are, is that they have an enormous amount of respect for their enemy and their nation and their customs and their traditions, at the same time that they trance their own and that they 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 they, they undermine their own. So that it's never actually post-nationalism. It's always anti-nationalism. It's always it's always self-hatred. It's always the sense that there's something wrong with us that we have to apologize for that we're not allowed to assert our own our own identity, but everybody else, or particularly not everybody else, but the people who truly hate us, well, they're okay. and and uh, and that is the sense. And you know, um anytime that you talk with with a leftist in Israel about polygamy, uh, in in the, Bedouin, in the Bedouin community, or cruelty to animals, which is rampant among Israeli Arabs. Um, they always say, well, what about the Haredim? What about the ultra-Orthodox? And there's literally no comparison between the two. There's no point of comparison between the two, but it's always this red herring that they raise to try to pretend that there is moral equivalence between um between jews and arabs on these issues when there is none and it's always a way to not deal with a problem and
1: and they invented a term for for denying the problem it's intersectionality this 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 term is designed to conceal the fact that for instance in uh, in many indigenous populations and very clearly in the Arab population in Israel and more so in the Bedouin population of Israel um, women are treating treated like uh, property so but when you discuss in polite forums the predicament of of, uh, of Bedouin women, what you say is that they're oppressed twice as Bedouin and as women. And so you create the impression that they are, th- that the origin of oppression is always the hegemonic center, which in this case is the Zionist state. And they forget that the, 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 the protector of Arab women's rights uh, in, in the case of, of Israel is actually the state of Israel. And, and it does so in opposition to the uh, uh, the patriarchal um, arrangements of, of Arab society, which is exactly why Bedouins have started have starting importing uh, women from the uh, Palestinian Authority, because because. Bedouin women are all already acculturated to an extent to the Israeli conception of of gender equality and have access to education, access to the vote, access to, um, uh, I wouldn't call it empowerment, but access to and uh, other means of, 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 of uh, activity in the public sphere. And so they're now importing women who have not been exposed to the monstrous hegemony of Zionism and therefore have not uh, uh, been poisoned by, by equality.
0: And basically what we're seeing here, if you look at it, is that because of the progressive legal system in Israel, all of the, all of the positive changes That the Israeli Arab community was undergoing a decade ago in response to the rise of Islamist forces and the destabilization of the Arab world around Israel, whether in Egypt or in Syria in particular, um, has been reversed. So, that because, in the name of intersectionality or whatever you want to refer to it as, um, they have empowered. The most extreme forces inside of Israeli Arab society. And this is, of course, nowhere more apparent than with the Supreme Court's rulings ahead of elections, that these Arab-Israeli parties that openly call for the destruction of Israel, or as you said, you know, are by their, by their nature uh, anti-anti-Israel, anti-Zionists, reject Israel's right to exist, those under law under Israel's constitutional law, such as it is in a country without a constitution, our basic law, the Knesset, these parties are by definition barred from entering, barred from running for the Knesset. And yet the, the Supreme Court in its, infinite, in its infinite progressivism and anti-Zionism has enabled all of them to run. So in answer to my rhetorical question on Twitter today, about how are we supposed to look at the Israeli Arabs and how can we say that the vast majority of them are loyal to the state when all of their political representatives are anti-Zionist. All of them uh, support the destruction of the state. The answer is you have to bar them from voting for these parties and you have to force them to make decisions between parties that accept Israel's right to exist because that will already put them into a different position vis-a-vis the state when they know that they can't be represented by groups that, that that reject Israel's right to exist. Their uh, passion for working towards Israel's destruction will by necessity be, be diminished, by necessity be diminished. And so you, you look at this situation and you say, we're actually empowering the most radical actors in Israeli Arab society. We're telling Israeli Arabs that they should be voting for them, that they should be then uh, 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 working actively to undermine the existence of the state of Israel through their Knesset representatives and through stealing land, non-payment of taxes, all of the rest of it, because Israel will not enforce its laws against Arab lawbreakers. And we see this across the board, whether it's theft, whether it's whether it's land theft, whether it's property theft, whether through the protection rackets, through breaking and entering private homes, whatever it is, the law is not being enforced towards Israel's Arab community. Almost and here, and here's, the, here's,
1: here's, I think, the, the big propaganda lie. I, I, I had a meeting with a European journalist who said to me, isn't it great that that for the first time, here is an Arab party, Ram, member of the coalition, agreed to recognize the, uh, the the national Jewish character of the state and create a, a civil alliance with the Jewish population which will promote democracy and equality. And this is how this is sold abroad. And people forget that this is the Muslim Brotherhood. And this is the tactic of the Muslim Brotherhood everywhere. This, this party is now holding the coalition by the Throat. I'm trying to use only polite terms, and and it has um, enormous budgets for it. It gets enormous budgets for uh, for for its support. And and what does it? But do it's also its a budget? form of
0: protection, right? Wherever have you heard in the world that a, that a party agrees to join a coalition government in exchange for fifty billion shekels to its pocket? None of this money is going to be accounted for. We don't know where any of this goes. They could build an it, army it, it, with it, this money.
1: It's more complicated because part of it is, is accountable and part of it isn't a- accountable. But the, but the the most important thing is that under, under things that are supposedly accountable, like uh, 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 culture budgets, these culture budgets are not going to go to Jewish Arab theaters. They're going to go to... Muslim madrasa centers and to mosques where radical imams like Sheikh Raid Salah and, and, and his colleagues are preaching anti-wild, violent anti-Semitism and the destruction of Zionism. So what it really does is under the guise of promoting civil alliance, it is taking money from the state in order to deliberately radicalize politically and and islamicize and uh, um I, i'm using different terms because on the one hand it's palestinian nationalism on the other hand it's I- islamic radicalism which in israel unlike other places where the muslim brotherhood is usually not specifically national join forces in israel and and we are breeding the next uh, generation of 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 uh, of Daesh-like uh, uh, terrorists. This is what we're doing, state-sponsored, under the guise of a supposedly peaceful uh, mutual recognitions of, of, of the Arab parties and, and the state of Israel.
0: You know, I mean, and, and you were talking about your the European journalists that you were speaking to. I mean, talk about American Jews, right? And I mean, you have these uh, a very, uh, uh, I don't say they're not a hard line. I mean, from my perspective, a lot of them are squishy. But you know, you have a lot of these mainstream American Jewish organizations that can't get enough of Rahm, that can't get enough of Mensoor Abbas, because they look at him and at the Muslim Brotherhood Party that has insinuated into it in itself into the heart of Israeli political life. Um, they they view this as the ultimate response to the apartheid slur. Right. And 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 this is a huge problem because, you know, it's like there are all of these knots that are that are trapping us. And so the idea that we have to respond to a slur that says that Israel is an apartheid state makes you think that the best way to do it is by empowering Israeli Arabs. But you empower Israeli Arabs who will be the first ones out there supporting terrorism attacking Israel's right to exist, because those are the Israeli Arab political forces that exist. There aren't Israeli political forces in the Arab sector that accept Israel's right to exist. So that any Arab Israeli politician that you get, we just had one, came to the United States, I don't remember which one, and was speaking at all of these um, Jewish Voice for Peace events calling Israel an apartheid state. He's a member of the Knesset. And he's saying this, and, you know, Azmi Bishara did it. Um, uh, Ayman Uda, the head of the joint Arab list says it all the time. Hanin Zawabi said it all the time. All of these Israeli Arab members of Knesset, they go, they are featured speakers at all of these BDS conferences at all of these Israel apartheid week on campus conferences in the United States and throughout the West. And then these American Jewish organizations that are well-meaning, look at Ram and say, see, Israel is in an apartheid state. And my, my, and, and the problem is that, of course, we're not. And the fact that you feel that you need to defend against it is itself a problem. Because by doing that, you entrap us once again, because you, then you legitimize a force that mustn't be legitimized. And, and this in a way brings us, I think, maybe to the end of the discussion of this, because I also want to move on to the negative summit, which I think was uh, strategic disaster for Israel. And, and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about it. Um, but I want to talk about the attacks, and the and the larger phenomenon, the iceberg that that the attacks are the tip of uh, in the framework of this government. And like you were saying, a government that's completely reliant for its very existence on the Muslim Brotherhood. So what do you think th- about that? About, about the government the, being completely dependent on Ram for its it, very it, it, existence, given the radicalization of the Israeli Arab community.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think we we had a disagreement before before this coalition was formed. Right, we did. Um, um, and, and when when the Likud flirted with the idea of of uh, of creating its coalition with uh, of supplementing it, the missing number of members of parliament it had with RAM. And I thought that this is a very, very dangerous game. And, and, and I think that, that we see the consequences now, because in the Israeli system, um, when you have um, when, when you, uh, uh, my friend uh, Bendro Yemini, the journalist, calls our uh, form of government, Mi- miutokratia. It's minoritokratia, It's because minorities control the government. Because since we always have someone who is there's no English term that I know of. Le- the balance, nine, it's the hold, balance
0: of power. He he we'll holds hold. a balance of forces so that if he leaves, there is no government, and he yeah, can form yeah. a government with anybody.
1: So this is the piece that's at the center and yeah. can decide which block, the right wing or the left wing block, gets to be <laughs> the kingmaker. The now we, we always thought that, that that the it's it's clear that the Arab parties are to the left of the left, and what what we did to Ram the, the both right and left did to Ram is they made Mahmoud Abbas the holder of the balance of power, the kingmaker, and now it, in a, in a in a a Jewish in a nation state. The people who hold the balance, who decide who the government would be, who control the 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 steering wheel of the Zionist project, are the Muslim Brotherhoods, whose long-term goal is the destruction of Zionism. Now, imagine this: Mansour Abbas is very, very smart. He's probably the smartest politician, with the exception maybe of. Uh, of, of Netanyahu in in this government in in this parliament and 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 if he'll be smart then he would try to maneuver this wedge that he has in the middle of the political map now to gradually tear the israeli uh, public into uh, in into two irreconcilable uh, factions as if the the, the 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 rift between right and left in Israel is not already terrible. so we're we are if you think of this just graphically now the 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 Muslim Brotherhood holds a wedge, right smack dab in the middle of the israeli political structure and can use it to 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 shake and destabilize that structure
0: well, i don't i mean i think I think you're right, and I think that. Uh... Um, I mean, the truth is at the end of the day, every time you come to it, I say, we just have to get rid of this government. We, you know, it just, you know, we're looking at the polls and we look at the polls and you look at the polls and you say, there's something terrible that's happened in Israel because the the right wing is the majority of the country. The vast majority of the country wants Israel to remain a, a Jewish state, the vast majority. But you can't get a you can't get a majority uh, in the coalition in 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 the Knesset for this because you have so many parties, so many little parties, that decided that what was more important than 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 that than protecting this country as the Jewish state is to get Netanyahu out of power, and they continue to be moved and motivated by this single-minded commitment to hating Netanyahu and to hating his supporters to the point where they're willing to give the keys to the realm to the Muslim Brotherhood. And I don't know. I mean, you, you look at the polls and you look at the polls and yes, the right wing is vastly larger than the left. And yes, the number of Israelis who want to have a Zionist government, you know, is probably makes up something like 75% 75% of the com- of, of the country, of the Jewish Israeli vote, if not more, but you can't get it because you have these never Netanyahu parties that are like the never Trumpers in the United States that are perfectly willing to advance the most progressive anti-Zionist policies in order to remain in power personally. And I think that that corruption is, is just, Horrific and and I think that this is actually not a bad segue to start talking about the Negev summit, because I think that the Negev summit where we had, which was a a production that was put on by uh, foreign minister uh, Yair lapid. uh, This week, that was a follow up of the the Sharm el Sheikh conference uh, in 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 the Sinai that is Egyptian President. uh, uh, Sisi hosted last week with. uh, with uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince of the of the UAE and and with Bennett. Um, I think that these are also, especially the Negev summit, they're, um, they're watershed events, uh, but not in a good way. Um, because they show the unraveling of Israel's will to survive as manifested by the positions of this government uh, in relation to the United States. And and you and Mike Duran uh, wrote an important article about the U.S. and its position on Israel in, in Haaretz on Friday. And if you just maybe we can start this uh, discussion in a significant way, if you just sort of summarize, you know, what your what your arguments were there.
1: Yeah, f- first of all, it's it's now in Haaretz's uh, English version, too. So you're, you're yeah the viewers of this podcast can can read it there if they have access to it but what we tried to say is that that Israel is making a serious mistake by uh, attempting to preserve a veneer of understanding and cooperation with the Biden administration because what what we are Israeli, Israeli uh, uh, officials say to the Biden administration behind closed doors, that they favor the Trump maximum pressure uh, uh, strategy. Uh, but in public, they accept the ridiculous narrative that what made the Iranians uh, get closer to a bomb was the fact that Trump has left the agreement. And this paralyzes the ability of Israel's supporters and the, all those who object to the to the nuclear deal to, to, to fight it effectively in the United States because um, because how can you argue against an agreement if you if the Israelis say that it was a mistake to leave it? So Israel is cooperating with the, the Biden administration's. Um, uh, propaganda, as if this agreement in any way stops the Iranian uh, military nuclear program, and it doesn't. Um, even in, if you, if you, with with the most generous interpretation, by the end of this decade, it removes all meaningful uh, limitations on a military nuclear program. So it grants Iran the bomb. Now Israelis. Uh, have begun to say, and Naftali Bennett has said so in a, in a talk he held with the Mossad operatives in, in a Mossad installation, he said that we are not bound by this agreement. And he also said that to them, to the Mossad people, you will probably have a lot of work on your hands in the near future. Now, this means that Israel is understanding that the United States is not going to help it in any attempt to stop the uh, Iranians from achieving a bomb, and it would go it alone. That's a commendable um, uh, strategy on the part of Israel. But what we need to think of, and this was the crux of our article, is that the minute we start going it alone after the agreement is signed, we are going to face very difficult opposition. And especially the Iranians are going to do their best to drag the United States into this uh, into this conflict between Israel and Iran. And, 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 and the, the, the attempt will be to convince the American public that here are the recalcitrant Israelis and they're trying to drag America to fight their wars in the Middle East. And in order to counter that, that strategy, um, what we suggested and Mike has been saying for a while now, is that we should do what Churchill did in 1941, when he said to President Roosevelt, uh, give us the tools and we'll finish the job. It will be very hard for the Biden administration to refuse such a request because if it did, it would publicly have to confess that it's been siding with Iran all along and this will not fly with many american voters instead israel is helping biden sell the the lie that this agreement somehow is a containment
0: of iran see and but we the thing is, is that, that i mean you know i i i i agree and disagree with with your plan only because i mean i think it's a sound thing for israel to offer but i don't believe that the biden administration will accept it because they don't care because you know, one of the things that you find with the with the Biden- but, but in that
1: case, but the point is exactly that in that case, we would force them to confess publicly that they side with Iran against
0: Israel. But I don't think that I don't think that that would be as 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 large an obstacle as you think it would. And I'm not and I'm not sure. I mean, I think that if you were gaming this out in the Mossad or in the foreign ministry or or in the army, and, and you came to the end state where the Biden administration openly acknowledges that it supports Iran over Israel, that you would consider that to be a positive outcome. I mean, I think that I think that there are certain things that are that are obvious. And one of them is that the Biden administration supports Iran against Israel and against the Saudis and and the Sunnis in general. And I think that the thing that Israel has to do under these circumstances is Uh, to point it out, um, in a way that doesn't undermine its own standing at home or abroad. And and I think that an open statement by the Biden administration that they don't have, you know, that they think that Iran is the injured party here um, would, at a minimum, be a green light for massive terrorist operations against Israel. And, and that we would see an enormous amount of bloodshot as, re, as a result. And I think that we're going to see enormous amounts of bloodshed, unfortunately, because of this US policy because it's so destabilizing. Um, but I, I don't think that this is something that Israel necessarily wants to instigate but I, I mean I, I agree. I agree that Israel has to go out on its own and I think that it's for a, a much more basic reason. And, and I wrote about this in my article in Israel own last week and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and what I said there was that you know, we, have, we have this problem with the Biden administration, which is that they are pulling the United States out of the Middle East and uh, they're doing it by empowering Iran at the expense of Israel and the Saudi Arabians and the other Sunni Arab states. And the Sunni Arab states are looking around, they're not as powerful militarily as Israel is. And they're thinking, what can we do? And this is an, an analysis that that, uh, that uh, my, my colleague and friend and who, who viewers here well know, David Wormser in Washington, um, uh, wrote about in, in JNS last week, which is that they're trying to find who the strong tribe is. The United States was always perceived as the strong tribe in the Middle East and that the Saudis, the American, the Israelis, the UAE uh, were all under the American security umbrella of that tribe. And in exchange for protection from that tribe, uh, they gave loyalty to that tribe. And the United States now, by embracing Iran, which is in a a blood feud with the Sunnis, um, the United States is essentially telling the Iranians that our lives are forfeit, and we can either accept the forfeiture of our lives and our countries, or we can—the Arabs are we—we we can find a strong tribe to replace the United States. And you know, um, some of them are looking at China. The Saudis are looking at China. Uh, the Egyptians are looking at the Russians. Uh, but in in all likelihood, neither the Chinese nor the Russians, both of whom are allied uh, with the with the Iranians, and both of whom face restive Sunni. Arab populations in their own societies are likely to want to have a strategic alliance of the type that the United States built uh, with the Saudis or with the Russians or or, or with the Egyptians or anybody else. They're not in a position to do so, and and they can probably get more bang for their buck by offering less. Um, And that leaves Israel. And under Netanyahu, when Netanyahu was leading the fight against the Iran nuclear deal, the the, the Sunnis uh, believed that Israel would be willing to and capable of replacing the United States as a strong tribe in the Middle East. And what we saw with the Abraham Accords were a function of that belief. Unfortunately, under the current government, which is doing the exact opposite of Netanyahu in terms of. Uh, Embracing a subservient posture, or adopting a subservient posture to the United States, a supine posture towards the United States, not standing up to them, not voicing any public criticism of the nuclear deal. And if you and if you pay attention, Israel's criticisms of U.S. policy towards Iran are completely limited to saying we oppose removing the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps from the State Department's uh, list of foreign terrorist organizations. This is. This is Israel's position. This is the only position that the government has publicly stated in relation to U.S. diplomacy with Iran. Even though U.S. diplomacy with Iran ensures that Iran will, at a minimum, become a nuclear breakout state in two and a half years, and uh, and likely field the nuclear arsenal uh, in in uh, in uh, two or three years, maximum by 2030. Um, so you know we're talking about. Uh, a much greater dimension of threat than removing the IRGC from the foreign terrorist organization list, and yet that's all that the Israeli government is willing to oppose so the the Arabs are looking at this, <coughs> and excuse me, and you see much more outspoken criticism of u s policy from the Saudis and from the UAE than you hear from the Israeli government.
1: Yeah the the UAE for a while didn't refuse to answer Biden's telephones.
0: And and who brought them together? Who brought Mbz uh, to 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 uh, to accept or to speak again with the Biden administration and sent his foreign minister to Beaucaire yesterday?
1: Our brilliant strategists.
0: Our brilliant stra- strategists. Yep. Uh, uh, Mr. Lapide and Mr. Bennett who have been acting not only as mediators between Putin and Zelensky, but also between Tony Blinken and Joe Biden or what's left of him and the UAE and the Saudis. And this is crazy because what Israel is doing there is it's saying to them, hey, look, you know, we don't wanna be the strong horse. And in fact, they publicly stated it. they said they wanted the United States to run the alliance, the anti-Iran alliance that formed because the United States abandoned its own allies in favor of Iran. Now we're saying we want them to lead the alliance against their own policies. That was what bringing Blinken to Care did. It said, okay, guys, hey, listen, um, we're gonna bring in Blinken to lead our alliance against his own policy. And do you know what happened as a result? What happened as a result is that the Care conference, which was supposed to be an anti-Iranian conference, it was supposed to be a conference that brought together the foreign ministers of Israel, Egypt, the UAE, and Bahrain, and Bahrain, to talk about uh, Iran, and instead all of them ganged up on their host and started talking about the Palestinians because that is what the Biden administration wants to talk about. They want to. This is how. This is how they undermine Israel. This is how hostile the Biden administration is to Israel. On the one hand, they want to downgrade, they are downgrading the U.S.-Israel alliance and Israel's strategic standing in the region and its security in the region by empowering Iran, by giving it both the financial and military capabilities to become a nuclear armed state capable of waging regional war against Israel and against the Sunni Arabs through the nuclear deal. That's what they're doing in Vienna. And they want to weaken Israel again, by attacking it in Jerusalem, by siding with the Palestinians against Israel, and by saying that Israel is to blame for the absence of Palestinian Israeli peace. And most importantly, they want to remove the two chief achievements of the Abraham Accords. First, the uh, the aligning and uh, uh, due to the alignment of Israeli-Sunni Arab interests over Iran, the formation of a strategic alliance between these parties against Iran. They wanna remove that. And and Yair Lapid managed to do that by bringing Blinken in to run an alliance against his policy, which of course he destroyed. And second achievement was that the Abraham Accords took away the Palestinian veto over Arab Israel peace. So by bringing it back to center stage, the Palestinians back to center stage, and, and having every single Arab foreign minister, one after the other, that were all standing in Israel, and then they all stood as one and said they support a two-state solution, they'd support the establishment of a Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital, while they're standing next to the Israeli foreign minister who says nothing, right? Blinken just successfully transformed the Abraham Accords into a, 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 a summit for bullying Israel, about the Palestinians and they did it. And here is just to link it back to our previous discussion about Arab Israelis. There is, if there is one thing that proves the the existential threat posed by a Palestinian state west of the Jordan River to Israel, it's the uprising of Israeli Arabs against Israel. Because the idea of a two-state solution is, is predicated on this notion that you can limit the you can appease the arabs of the land of israel by give by partitioning the land between the jews and the arabs and you give the arabs secrete areas limited areas the jews as well limited areas of sovereignty they agree on those boundaries and then within the boundaries that they've accepted for their two states they're able to coexist But when you empower, when you see that the Israeli Arab population is now engaged in active rebellion and war against their Jewish neighbors, you see that a Palestinian state, which we know will be a terrorist state because we already have one in Gaza, which is a terrorist state, and because Palestinian society in Judea and Samaria is is immersed in, in, in Jew hatred and in support for terrorism under the PLO. So we know that it's going to be a terrorist state. That state is going to be a focal point for mobilizing Israeli Arabs in the Galilee, in the Sharon, in the Negev, everywhere to destroy the Jewish state. And they will so that you cannot look at Israeli Arab terrorism, Islamism, Palestinianization of Israeli Arabs and Believe that it is possible to resolve the Palestinian conflict with Israel through the formation of a state. That is not a path for resolution. That is a path for the dissolution of Israel.
1: Oh wow. Uh, I, I open with saying that I would bring some optimism. I can't. Uh, this is this this and you and you phrase it exactly right. I had a I had um, uh, Mike Pompeo, I had the honor of having him on my podcast and he explained the U.S. policy, the Trump administration's U.S. policy in the Middle East in three uh, bullet points. One, Iran is the destabilizing element. Secondly, in order to form a coalition against Iran, one must bypass the Palestinian veto on Israeli-Arab relations. And three, you need to have a credible force Um, A credible threat of force in the Middle East. And what these people are doing very meticulously is now exactly reversing this. In order to pull out American forces, they're inserting the Palestinian veto in order to disperse the anti-Iran coalition so as to pave the way for Iranian hegemony in, in the region that's what they're doing and 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 it's amazing the short-sightedness of our uh, uh, of our government of lapid and bennett who for a few and you know the, the this administration has got their number just so exactly right these people do anything for photo ops so just give them photo ops and it doesn't matter what the content is the american Secretary of State can stand right by the Israeli foreign minister, who is the the next uh, prime minister, according to the coalition agreement, and refuse to say that the IRCG, the IRGC is a, a terrorist organization. Just flat out in front of him. And this is the only point by, in which Lapid dared say something criticizing America
0: you know, there's this, there's this Israeli reporter, the thing we've spoken about in the past, because he's really sort of a, uh, uh, he's an agent of chaos, but he's not an agent of chaos. What he is, is he's an agent of the American deep state and his name is Barack Ravid, right? And we've talked about him uh, in the past on our show. And, um, and Barack Ravid was one of the two journalists who were allowed to ask questions. And he was the one who asked the question to Blinken, is the IRGC a terrorist organization? And Blinken said, and Blinken refused to answer that yes or no question with a duh, yes, right? Uh, he said, well, they, they have a lot of designations. What does that even mean? So anyway, so that's what, that was his his non-answer because the Americans have no intention whatsoever of keeping the IRGC on the terrorists because uh, all they want to do is appease Iran and, they, and Blinken came here to bust up the anti-Iran alliance of Israel and the Saudi and the Saudis, and he, and he was and he was fairly successful apparently, um, although Israel has a deep state too, and I'd like to believe that uh, that 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 despite uh, Lapid's insanity, uh, other things are happening beneath the surface. At any rate, um, the the uh, the point that I wanted to make was that when you see uh, uh, Barak Ravid. He wrote this tweet. He wrote this tweet last, uh, last night that all of the foreign ministry was swooning over, which was that a high level uh, US official said to him, <clears throat> We couldn't believe the efficiency and the competence of the Israeli foreign ministry. Lapid put together that whole summit in under a week. If somebody told us to do it, we never would have been able to do it. But look at this incredible efficiency of the Israeli foreign ministry that they were able to put together this multinational summit with no forewarning, with no prior warning, with no nothing in a week. And sure, to be sure, that's very impressive and all of that. But the point is that this is what they care about, that Barak Ravid knew exactly what to say, and so did the source in, in the biden administration that ha, that fed him that bull crap right because because these kinds of you know sweet nothings that you whisper into the ear oh you're so competent little israel you know this is the pearls to swine this is how you this is how you know this is how how the how the the american west was settled by giving fake pearls to indians you know i mean it it just it glass beads this this is what it was about and these are glass beads and, and it works, and it's, and, it, and, it, and it's very distressing because the other thing that you can say about the non-preparation for the summit is that if they had spent, you know, if anybody had really thought about it, if, if they had spent a day thinking about what they would want to accomplish in such a summit and bringing in Blinken, what would that do to the alliance against Iran? They might've come to the conclusion that they shouldn't have the summit when Blinken is in town. But they didn't apparently have that preparation. All they were looking for was a great hotel and what they would eat and what the menu was gonna be and what the photo op was gonna look like. And it was just one big PR production. And as a result, the content was entirely anti-Israel.
1: Yeah. Uh, This was the uh, most pompous, uh, diplomatic faux pas of the century. I don't think any Israeli uh, government committed a, a stupider uh,
0: diplomatic uh, uh, bungle. But you know, look, I I, I want to say two things because, as you said, we're just you know, you and I have a tendency to to leave our to leave our audience wanting to you know, just tear out their hair um but there there are a couple of things here that and somehow I somehow
1: think... it's always my hair not yours
0: right well you know i don't yeah. know i guess you you know you're right you got no hair man what you going to do you
1: shouldn't <laughs> tell people that you shouldn't <laughs>
0: tell people that oh sorry there you go. you brought it up but you look good with those headphones yeah
1: that's what they're for <laughs>
0: Uh, now are they going to save Carolyn's? Carolyn's mean she's giving ball man jokes that's not fair but uh (laughs) if I
1: were if I were Will Smith now
0: yeah you would hit me right and I would say oh you gotta (laughs) hand it to Chris Rock though I mean he he handled that uh he he I mean Will Smith I don't want to watch another one of his movies I mean he just ruined himself like there's no way you look at that and and as far as I'm concerned it's true. We were watching that. My, I showed it to my husband last night. He wanted to watch it again and again, you know, and we were watching it on YouTube. It's like, I can't believe that. he was in stunned shock. And, and, and the first time you watch it, you say, well, good for him for standing up for his wife. And then the second time you say that you think, how dare he, you know, what was his joke? It was nothing. I mean, it was nothing. It was harmless. It, it, it was playful. How could he do this? And if he didn't like it, is that, the, is that how he responds every time that somebody says something that he doesn't like? I mean, this guy- And, and this if he were weird.
1: not a celebrity, would he not be now indicted- In jail. For attack?
0: Yeah, no, but, for assault. I mean, he
1: committed yeah, a felony but, yeah, on live is,
0: television in front of, you know, uh, like a billion the people.
1: The he's law is not applied to our elites.
0: No, but, but all I was going to say was two things. One is, it does bring home just how bad things can become when under when when you have these elites are uh, you know the elite the elites in the Western world and in Israel are increasingly I mean, you can come to the point where you it's beyond increasingly they have crossed the precipice into um, outright betrayal. and um you know, and that's just the way it is. but um I think that uh, the 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 basic foundations of Israel remain strong and remain um, committed to our survival. I was speaking to a very senior person in Israel um, a couple of weeks ago and uh, about everything that's happening. And he said, "You, you know, Carolyn, I understand why you're not sleeping well at night worrying about all of these things, but you're not the only one. And Israel has the wherewithal to protect ourselves and we're not going to be destroyed. And I think that the concept is that our political leaders and even our legal fraternity are, con- are causing enormous damage to this country, both inside and out, but um, we also have a deep state and it hasn't turned against us. Uh, and, uh, and I think that that's important. It's important for us to keep up the fight and I'm glad to have you back uh, this week, uh, Gadi, on the show. Uh, so thank you for coming back a for your guest appearance. And uh, and uh, and uh, we just have to keep up the fight. But we're not alone. There are a lot of other people who are involved in it. And and uh, God willing, uh, we will not go gently into that good night. And no matter how, no matter what the best efforts of our brilliant strategists who are running the, the program uh, seem to be. So on that happy note, remember last week I signed off with that telling you to subscribe and share and all of that, but you got to do that, right, Gowdy? I mean, if they don't subscribe, we're over 4,000 subscribers, so that's terrific. And uh, and uh, we want to get up to 10,000 <laughs> over by the time we get to our 50-second show. So Take care, everybody. Take care, Gotti. Thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having Great me. Great having you. It was really, it was really terrific. <music>